Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Father, we as your family hear these words, and we rejoice in hearing ourselves identified in them. But we pray that you would open our ears to your words so that we might hear In Christ's name, amen. Modern churches have a tendency to emphasize family above all else. The way that we oftentimes speak about family life can be alienating to people who have difficult families, which is ironic because it seems that Jesus himself had a difficult family, as you can see in the passage that we've just read. But you don't have to only rely on the implications of what we've read. It's actually spelled out for us elsewhere. If you look in John's Gospel, in John chapter five, verse or chapter seven, verse five, John notes that for not even his brothers believed in him. His own brothers didn't believe in him. And the fact that they didn't believe in him influenced their actions towards him. If you go to Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 3, which is where Mark tells this same story, gives us an account of what Matthew is describing, Mark introduces it by saying, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. His family thought he was crazy. It's interesting that that criticism is exactly the criticism that Jesus' worst critics leveled against him. In John 10, verse 20, we see the critics of Jesus saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Pretty difficult when the people who hate you most are just saying back to you the same things that your family has been saying to you all along. We saw in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus say, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. It's tempting to think here that he was speaking from first-hand knowledge. If you remember, Jesus added to that thought this. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. When we looked at that in Matthew 10, one of the points we made, which should be obvious here, is that Jesus didn't put family first. Not in the modern sense. Oftentimes, that phrase for us, family first, that sounds so good. We're constantly telling ourselves that the the warm and fuzzy thing to do is to put family first. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't put family first, and he did not teach us to put family first either. If you want to hear more about that, you can go back to our sermons from September. September 25th, Losing Your Life to Find It was the name of that sermon. So here, at the end of Matthew 12, when Jesus' mother and his brothers arrive and they stand outside, it's impossible not to interpret this moment in light of all of that other information. 
and wonder what exactly is going on. In fact, Mark makes it pretty clear that they're present in order to intervene. That because they think he's crazy, they've gone to the place where he's gathered these crowds and they're asking him to come out so essentially they can conduct an intervention. Now we've seen throughout Matthew 11 and Matthew 12 a recurring theme of people questioning Jesus. As the kingdom is being proclaimed, it's also being resisted just as strongly. It seems as if every success of the gospel is met with pushback, with opposition. But you can see here that that resistance is not just from the outside. That Jesus faces that resistance even from his own family. And so Jesus, in his reaction here, when he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And then turns to his disciples and says, they are? It's them? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother? He points us to what we might think of as a true understanding of family. And so this morning, that's what I want to think about, a true understanding of family. Because we talk a lot about family in church. We talk about the church as the family of Christ. But what does that mean exactly? Family is a changing concept. The way we talk about family in my lifetime has changed a lot. Family in 2023 is more complicated than it was in, for example, 1993. If you're old enough to remember uh, Dan Quayle, uh, Vice President Dan Quayle, who got in a lot of trouble for defending what he called family values, if you remember that, then you're old, like me, because a lot of people don't have any idea who Dan Quayle was or what he meant. We don't think about family in the same terms. Today, there's an assumption that is built into our idea of family, which is that family comes in many different forms. That family is what you make it. Cultural concepts have always been malleable, though. And this isn't the first time that the idea of family has changed. In fact, family in our own time is not just different from family in the past, but family in the past is different from family as it was in the time of Jesus. If you could go back to the supposedly magical era of the 1950s in America, uh, where we oftentimes locate the, the ideal notion of family, family then was not like family was in the days of Jesus. Back then, the idea of traditional family was the nuclear family. Even the name should suggest it was a new idea. That's mom and dad and the kids. That's the family. But in Judea, in the days of Jesus, that wasn't all there was to family. The traditional family would have been more expansive than that. It would have included more people. It would have been more like what we would call an extended family or even a, a tribe or a clan. Their notion of who was their family was bigger than ours. But it did have something in common family in the 1950s and family in ancient Judea had in common the fact that family ties were biologically based, that family was something that you're born into. And not only were you born into your family, but the family that you were born into largely defined who you were. Your family, 
which you were born into defined what we would call your identity. Why is it that Matthew begins his gospel of Jesus Christ with a genealogy? There are a number of reasons. We explored some at the beginning of this study, but one reason, I think, is that he needs to explain how it is that an obscure carpenter's son from Nazareth is claiming to be the Messiah. When everybody knows, and Nathaniel says out loud, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. To be the Messiah, you have to be born into it. And so Matthew needs to demonstrate that Jesus was born to be the Messiah. That's not the way we think about family anymore. Family has changed. Don't get me wrong. For the most part, we still operate with a sort of practical understanding of biological family. If you're opening presents on Christmas morning and a stranger walks in and says, hey, I too am part of your family, you'd say, no, get out of here. You're not part of our family. We, we operate more or less the way we always have, but we don't talk about family that way. When we talk about family, when we define family, we're careful now not to limit it to this idea of biology. You're not stuck with the family you're born with. Maybe you were born into trouble, born into a dysfunctional family. Maybe your brothers think that you're crazy and they would love to seize you and see you locked up. But the good news is there's another kind of family. Not just the family you're born into, but the family you make for yourself. That can be a liberating concept when you think about it. For many of you, that is a liberating concept. For many of you, the church is the perfect example of a family that you make for yourself. Some of you have found love and value in the church that you've never experienced from the family that you were born into. Some of you in the church have discovered for the first time that family doesn't have to be a bad thing, that you're not doomed to live with whatever you were born into. In other words, let's acknowledge that not all changes for the worse, that you can see an upside to this development of the idea. If we have a wider, more expansive idea of family today, that may not be such a bad thing. For many people, a lot of people, it's not. It's a good thing. We all have sympathy for people who seem to have drawn the short straw family-wise. God knows what he's doing in his providence, in the families that he places us in, but sometimes you can't help feeling for that son or daughter who got stuck with those parents. God knows what he's doing in his providence, but sometimes you just can't help feeling for the parents who are stuck with that kid. You sympathize for the, the, the straitjacket of the family that you were born into. I see a lot of young people nodding their heads right now. Yes, it can be tough. Biological family is a good thing. It's a God-given gift, but we can still acknowledge the effects of sin on the family, and we can admit when things go wrong, right? Can we, though, be honest in the other direction? Can we take an honest look at our new way of thinking and see that there could also be a downside? That's the question I want you to think about. Is it true that the family you make for yourself is always liberating? That there's no downside to the way that we're determined to talk 
about family as a self-constructed relationship. So I want to think about these things. First, I want to think about the connection between family and identity and how the way that we talk about family now can undermine the blessings of both family and identity. And secondly, more importantly, I want you to realize something. When Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, he is not referring to biological family or to self-constructed family. He's talking about something different from both of those things. Something else entirely. He's referring to the family that God makes for us. I need to confess that I am an old man. I've gotten to the point where I realize I'm, I'm over the hill. I'm not all the way at the bottom, but I'm definitely on the other side now. Not only do I remember Dan Quayle's family values, but I can remember things that happened before that vividly. I remember, for example, the experience in the 1980s of being introduced to what were revered stories, texts my teachers loved that meant so meaningful for them in their, their 1960s upbringing, books like On the Road and Catcher in the Rye and a host of others where all of the characters, the heroes of the stories were all on this journey to find themselves. My first introduction to that term was baffling to me, to find themselves. Like, I grew up with stories where people went out to find, you know, treasure or victory or glory or success or something, but not themselves because themselves was already there at the beginning. Like, how could you go on a journey to find yourself? Who were these losers? I asked myself, who'd managed somehow to lose themselves? in the first place. And why would I want to read about someone like that? I mean, the classical heroes of literature, the ones who appealed to me, they were born with a mission. They were born with a destiny. Maybe I was drawn to them because that's how I felt. I felt like I was a person who'd been born with a mission, with a destiny, or at least a purpose. And maybe I would have to figure out what that was, but I didn't question the idea that it was true that there was a meaning to me, that I had some purpose, some heroic journey that I was meant to undertake, and it wasn't just to find myself. And now I was being told to identify with people who were born without a purpose, without any destiny or mission apart from whatever purpose they invented for themselves. I'm old because when I realized that this was what was happening, I felt depressed when I realized that I was being encouraged to think it was heroic to struggle to find yourself, it made me feel sad because it doesn't make people feel that way anymore because we've lived with the idea for too long. Today we talk about being born with no purpose, with no meaning, and having to invent or construct meaning for ourselves. And we talk about it in a way that makes it sound inspirational makes it sound like it's a good thing that we are whatever we make ourselves. The temperamental brats of literature of the 1960s have become the ideal human beings in our minds, the only people who understood what it means to be human. What we once said about family, 
It's a thing that you can make for yourself. We now say about identity itself. Identity is not something you're born into. It's something that you have to construct for yourself. Not that you may construct, but have to construct for yourself. That the human task, the noble thing that is set before you is to figure out who you will be. You could dismiss all of this as the gripings of an old man, except for one thing, the effects. The perspective may be old, but the effects are here for all of us to see. If you look at the world today, by our own standards, things are better than they have ever been in the course of human history. We are closer to our ideal of what society should be than we have ever been. We are as near to liberation with a capital L as the human race has ever come. And yet, we do not experience that liberation as freedom. We experience it as trauma. By our own standards, we are miserable. We are surrounded by comforts unimaginable to the people of the past on their little quests for treasure and glory. But we feel as if we live lives of utter darkness and despair. I think we can be honest about the downside of the way we've begun to think. That the identity that we make for ourselves is just as, if you'll forgive me, problematic as the identity that we're born with. That both of these ideas are not enough, inadequate. That both of them have been affected by sin. If you can admit that, then you realize that Jesus can't be talking about what we think he's talking about. Jesus isn't saying you're not stuck with the family you were born into. You can make the church your family instead. He's not talking about making anything for yourself. He's not saying, hey, if the family that you were born into doesn't believe in me, doesn't love you, that's no problem. You can make a family for yourself here in the church. That would be tantamount to Jesus saying something like, you were born in sin, and the answer is to save yourself by remaking yourself. And of course, Jesus would never say that. That is exactly what the moralists of the 1950s might have believed, though. That whatever problems we've inherited, we can make ourselves better. It is exactly what the moralists of 2023 believe as well. Although we think of them as polar opposites, they share that in common. But it is not what Jesus taught. You were born into sin. And you cannot remake yourself out of it. You don't need a construction project. You need a gift. What Jesus is teaching is that God has made a gift of family to you. And that is a gift of identity. It's also a gift that we all need. You better believe that the Gentiles and the apostolic era clung to ideas like this because they had not been born into the family. The people of God, the way they had understood it, was an ethnic tribe. You were born physically, biologically, into the family of God by being born a Jew. And if you were a Gentile, that was tough. Ironically, though, 
Paul, in reassuring the Gentiles, doesn't say, don't worry, you too can be born into it. The words that Paul uses imply that no one is born into it, despite what people used to think. If you look at Ephesians 2, he says, essentially, we're all born into sin, but none of us are born into salvation. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the minds, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All human beings, children, not of God, but of wrath. All human beings, sons, not of God, but of disobedience. That's the way Paul frames our situation. Both Jew and Gentile are born into sin, are sons of disobedience, are by nature children of wrath like everyone. What you were born into is death. And yet, if you keep reading, Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So clearly, you're not saved through self-invention. Your purpose, your meaning is not your own doing. It is not the result of your work. Instead, it's a gift. It's God's gift. It's God's workmanship, not yours, as Paul would say. This is who you are, Jesus declares. And this is where you belong. Jesus says, these are your people. He says, this family is your family. My family is your family. My brothers are your brothers. My sisters are your sisters. The beloved disciple John contemplates the love that unites us to God in this way. He says in 1 John 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, throughout our study of the last few chapters, we've seen this questioning of Jesus. We've seen how the good news of the kingdom is met with criticism and resistance. And it would be easy to think that that was all that was going on. It would be easy to think that all, was, all that was happening was Jesus, he would start teaching, and then some Pharisees would show up, and it would get really argumentative. Conflict has a tendency to draw the spotlight to itself. It makes sense, I think, if Jesus is teaching and people come and question him, then what we remember about that encounter is the questioning. But there were other things happening, things you wouldn't necessarily see because they weren't the things 
that were in the spotlight. Here at the end of the chapter, after all this conflict that we've been paying attention to, there's a hint that something else has been happening. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, look, wait a minute. Let's put a pause on all this question. Let me tell you the good news, that it is possible for you to be my brothers and sisters. When he introduces the idea, he doesn't introduce it as a hypothetical. He introduces it as an established fact by gesturing to people. He doesn't say, that's not my family out there. You could all be my family, if only. He's like, who are they? You are my brothers and sisters. These are my brothers and sisters. In other words, in the midst of all the conflict, a family has been being built all along. The work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, wasn't just answering conflicts. It wasn't just being challenged and questioned. The main thing was the thing that was happening all along behind the scenes. It was the building of the family of Christ. A spiritual family was being built. In the church throughout our history, it's the conflicts that make the headlines. But what matters is the family that God is building generation after generation, era after era. When we recount our history, it's a series of conflicts, arguments, winners and losers, but our real history isn't that. The fact that we're still here isn't because we triumphed over the conflicts. We're here because God made us into his family, because he built us into a dwelling place for him. That's true for the church, and it's true for you as well. When you think of your life and you think of what God's doing in your life, a lot of times the way we tell our history is as a history of trials and conflicts and struggles. The, the stuff, the opposition that we ran into and the way that we really tried to, to get through it and, and, and took damage along the way, that's the way we see the history of God working in our lives. But behind that conflict, there was always building, 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 strengthening relationships, ties, being established and growing all along. And that's why we made it. That's why we endured. That's why we survived. Not because of the conflict. Not because of the trials. The quiet work of building that the Spirit is doing in us making us into the family of Christ. That's what matters. And that's something you can hold on to. As you think about that, the implications are practical. This tells us how to think about ourselves as a church. The church is not a club. It's not an affinity group. It's not a bunch of people who like the same things, have the same politics, the same taste. The church is something else. God tells us who we are in part by telling us who we belong with. God defines us by defining all of us together, bringing us into a body. But we're not making ourselves. The church isn't here to make itself into the body of Christ. The church isn't here to grow itself. The church is something He is making. He is growing. There is no family. There is no identity that we can make for ourselves. 
There is no family, no identity that we can be born into that is more meaningful and more defining than the gift of family that we have in Jesus Christ. Which means that if you struggle with your family, if you struggle with your own identity, with your own purpose, look to what God speaks. Look to how He has made you and has made your family. Lean into the gift that He has given you. Jesus makes family. Which again, seems ironic. Because when it comes to His own family, He seems to have had a lot of trouble. But when you picture this moment with me at the end of Matthew 12, picture it and realize things were not necessarily as they may have appeared. It was Jesus' brothers who didn't believe. Not His mother. Never her. While some of His brothers eventually came to faith, I think we can be certain Mary always believed. And yet, she's there with them. His brothers come and they say, your mother and your brothers have come. What was she doing there? Maybe she felt conflicted. Maybe she was trying to rein in those brothers and what they were trying to do. Maybe it's just, you know, your kids are your kids. Whatever they're doing and you have to be there with them. We don't know. But I'm convinced that of all the pains that that lady suffered, the pain of her unbelieving sons must have been the greatest. If she wasn't always with the crowd, if she wasn't always at the feet of Jesus already, it was probably because she was with those sons trying to get them to Jesus' feet so that they might go from their unbelief to belief. The way Jesus speaks of His family is harsh to our ears, I think because His mother is included in that grouping. But there is another moment that gives clarity and context to this one. At the cross, Jesus gives a gift to His mother. He gives her the gift of family. In John 19, from the cross, Jesus looks down and He sees His mother there. Not His brothers, but His mother is there. And we read these words in John 19, starting in verse 26. When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to His mother, Woman, behold your son. Then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Well, if Jesus was crazy in the eyes of his brother, John must have been crazy too because he followed Jesus everywhere. He was beloved by Jesus. And now at the cross, Jesus gives this crazy disciple of his to his mother. He gives him to her. He gives his mother a son. And to his disciple, he gives his mother as a mother and unites them as a family. They weren't born into it and they didn't make it for themselves, but Jesus made it for them. And from that day forward, it was real. It was a bond. She lived in the household of John. Jesus gave her a better family than she'd been born into 
a better family than she could make for herself. And that's what He does for us as well. And that's the beauty of the grace that He has called you to. That He not only saves you as an individual, but when you come to Him, He gives you this gift of His family. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.